I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 61 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Pandora Sykes and Dolly Alderton. Welcome. Bienvenido. <laughs> I hope you've been uh, enjoying the heatwave. Have you been enjoying the heatwave, Pandora? I've only just got back to the heatwave, but um, I have been enjoying the heatwave, yeah. I'm up and down with it, to be honest. A roundup of this week's controversies. Melania Trump's I Really Don't Care, Do You? Jacket from Zara. We need to talk about Kevin Arthur Lionel Shriver's defence of her anti-diversity rant. And Johnny Depp's Rolling Stone interview, which revealed that he once tried to pull out his own tooth while at dinner with Penelope Cruz. We've all been there. I couldn't believe um, Melania wore that jacket. I was so, so shocked. And I absolutely, I do not buy that nonsense about it's just accidental and it's just clothes. There's only two possibilities, right, with Melania and that jacket. And they're both inadequate. The first scenario is that she didn't realise the impact of her jacket. And the Flotus's comms director, Stephanie Grisham, said, it's just a jacket, there's no hidden message. I hope the media isn't going to choose to focus on her wardrobe. Which some have said is actually a ruse in itself, as it allows the White House to then claim that the media is making fake news about her clothes and therefore distract from the shitty Mm. immigration policy Mm. that's obviously been getting so much um, criticism. Trump actually contradicts Melania's miso-ignorant shtick entirely. He said that her jacket was a response to fake news in that they're saying that they don't care about it anymore. The second option, of course, as you mentioned, is that Melania did know and that she was trying to make a point. And to use immigrant children to make that point is vile. But then the whole administration uses immigrant children. They put out the message of, if you come to the border, you will be separated from your children. One lovely thing out of this is that a brand called Wild Fang copied the Zara jacket and sold out with all sales being pledged to a refugee and immigrant support service in Texas. I think that that fake news theory and that kind of watch the birdie distraction technique for something which is nonsense actually, relatively speaking, I think that's a pretty dark theory, but I think it's pretty accurate. It's been reported that when Melania was told the average length of stay in the Immigrants Children's Centre in Texas that she was visiting for kids aged between 12 and 17 was 42 to 45 days, she goes, that's great. When I asked for advice, she told children to be kind and nice to each other. And to another bunch of detainees, she simply said, good luck. I think they're both just completely fucking useless. It's like they both need compassion and empathy training. And I wish they would just study it and copy it. I don't even mind if they don't feel it at this point. The thing is, is you have to remember that like a lot of world leaders aren't charismatic. It's why we love Barack Obama. But, you know, Hillary Clinton's not charismatic. Theresa May's not, not charismatic. It's not about charisma. It's just about feigning like well, basic compassion. Well, there's an interesting debate because I think charisma and empathy are very, very linked because I think they're all about warmth and sort of making people feel that you're relating to them and 
a lot of it is projection. And do you remember we were talking about it, I feel, uh, some, some episodes ago about how Michelle Obama, her kind of stage behaviour is very inclusive. She's very clever in the way she sort of performs when on stage and talking to a large audience, whereas Hillary Clinton's is very exclusive and that's where their campaign went wrong. The idea is that she wasn't, there was no use of kind of the we. Anyway, I think kind of political emotional intelligence is really interesting mm. um, and something to probably talk about another time. I have to say, I'm really disappointed by Lionel Shriver. To recap, she wrote in a widely criticised piece for The Spectator a few weeks ago, the beginning of June, in reference to Penguin Random House's new diversity policy. If an agent submits a manuscript from a gay transgender Caribbean who dropped out of school age seven and powers around town on a mobility scooter, it will be published whether or not said manuscript is an incoherent, tedious, meandering and insensible pile of mixed paper recycling. A few days ago, she defended that piece, again for The Spectator. We live in a dour and censorious age, she wrote. Perhaps in future it will prove necessary to write every column twice, the original with wit, playfulness and brio. Then I'll draft a pedantic, leadenly prosaic rendition without any jokes. The thing is, it didn't read like a no. joke. This isn't about her using her art to push boundaries. She's writing a first-person column as herself about diversity mm. and she's being really Germaine Greer meets sort of Jacob Rees-Mogg about this. In that second column that she's written defending her initial remarks she says the thing that she has a problem with specifically about the Penguin diversity proposal is that it aims to reflect the UK population by 2025 and I think that's just common sense. I think to have an issue with art stories and documentation of experience being expressed as a proportional representation of the population is just completely insane. I don't know how you can have an issue with it as a proposal. It, that must just be her privilege talking, I think. As, and as she, I just think it's, it's disappointing. I don't well, understand how you can find a problem in that. It's just common sense. Well, lots of authors like Hanif Qureshi have um, come out to say, um, yes, it's skewed, and rightly so, because it's been skewed towards essentially people like you for hundreds and thousands of years. I mean, that's not But if you think that's correct. on pure merit, then you're on another fucking planet. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the problem, I think, with these people that are, like, blinded by their own privilege is that they can't accept what their privilege might have afforded yeah, them. Yeah, there's 95% of the bestseller list are white because white, whites are better writers, aren't they? I mean, that's, you know, that, <laughs> that's, that's the, the logic subject. that makes sense yeah. for them. Yeah. On to Johnny Depp. One of the most ridiculous revelations in this interview with Rolling Stone with J Johnny Depp, and I haven't read it in full as it's not an easy magazine to get hold of, but God bless the internet for providing me with ample highlights. None of which seem to confront the fact, however, that he is operating in the world with total ease, still, despite never denying beating his ex-wife, something which bothers me every time I see a Dior Arm advert or read about his new super band. Anyway, Johnny Depp- Super band? He's in a super band. What would you mean super bad? It was like Louis Walsh. <laughs> it was, he was in the Times about three weeks ago. Yeah, he's in an American rock super group with Alice Cooper and someone else. That's so like post-judges' houses. He's trying to make some money back. Anyway, that's a whole different story. This Rolling Stone interview, one of my favourite things is that he confirms the rumours that he does wear an earpiece on set so that someone can feed him lines. And he says it's because it allows him to act with his eyes. Ah, oh, the Tyra Banks school of acting. The smizing. Dolly, you'd love the highlights from it. It also reveals that he bought a sofa from the Kardashians for seven grand for his daughter. Anyway, my favourite discovery of this week is Big Dick Energy. Do you know about this? No. You're going to love this. BDE all started when pop star Ariana Grande revealed, for reasons best known to herself, in a now-deleted tweet that her fiancé has a massive schlong. 
Good for her. And a few days later, a user on Twitter named Teen wrote a tweet saying that Pete Davison, her fiance, carried himself with big dick energy. I have to say, the name Pete Davison doesn't initially shout big dick energy to me. Well, the internet has gone wild for this and everyone from BuzzFeed to New York Magazine has written a piece on it. The Cut defined BDE as a certain gait, like you have a massive dick swinging around, but it's also a twinkle in the eye. Like if you look right at that twinkle, you can see a dick swinging in the eye. (laughs) Oh God, this is a time to be alive and I'm not even being ironic. My favourite contribution to the big dick energy conversation was a tweet from a woman called Emily Reynolds who says that BDE is actually gender neutral. She tweeted, I feel like people are mixing up big dick energy and has a big dick when actually you do not need to have a big dick to have big dick energy. Mm. I have big dick energy. Lindsay Lohan has big dick energy. Rihanna, big dick energy. Dolly, do you have BDE? No, not at all. I think I have small dick energy. Small dick and a lot to prove. (laughs) I wrote yesterday that I sort of oscillate when it comes to BDE. Some days I'm kind of like ultimo schlong and other days I'm a bit chody on the confidence No, I don't. I think you're pretty super schlong, I would say. (laughs) CJ, do you have big dick energy? That's a no comment from CJ. (laughs) What have you been enjoying this week, Dolly? I've got two recommendations this week and I want to push them very hard and with (laughs) utmost urgency and still how completely perfect they both are. So last weekend I went to my goddaughter Sienna's first birthday. Happy birthday, Sienna. And had a completely blissful time, not least because her other godmother, my friend Jess's husband, he calls himself a godfather-in-law, which we're still debating whether that's an actual thing, recommended a piece of writing that I think might be the best essay I've ever read. It was written by David Foster Wallace in the 90s. and it's on your Oh instead. my God, you would love it, Pandora. It was written by David Foster Wallace in the 90s and it's account of a seven-day luxury cruise that he went on and it's about, it probably probably takes about half an hour to read. Um, But it actually becomes so much more than an account of a luxury cruise and a kind of comic fish-out-of-water sketch. It actually becomes a meditation on ageing, consumerism, how we distract ourselves from the kind of prospect of death, the oppressiveness of luxury. It talks about America and Americans and tourism. I'd just like to read the opening couple of paragraphs. It has a really brilliant opening in which he reveals everything he's experienced and learnt from being on this cruise. I have now seen sucrose beaches and water a very bright blue. I have seen an all red leisure suit with flared lapels. I have smelled suntan lotion spread over 2,100 pounds of hot flesh. I have been addressed as Mon in three different nations. I've seen 500 upscale Americans dance the electric slide. I've seen sunsets that looked computer enhanced. I have, very briefly, joined a conga line. I've seen a lot of really big white ships. I've seen schools of little fish with fins that glow. I've seen and smelled all 145 cats inside the Ernest Hemingway residence of Key West, Florida. I now know the difference between straight bingo and prize O. I've seen fluorescent luggage and fluorescent sunglasses and fluorescent pince-nez and over 20 different makes of a rubber thong. I've heard steel drums and eaten conch fritters and watched a woman in silver lame projectile vomit inside a glass elevator. I've pointed rhythmically at the ceiling to the 2-4 beat of the same disco music I hated pointing at the ceiling to in 1977. Oh, that's brilliant. I look forward to reading that. I'll um, link it I'll in the send show notes. You, I'll link it in the show notes and I'll send you the PDF. The P, it was run in Harper's magazine years and years ago and the original PDF is available online. 
Uh, but it really reminded me of how vital it is for writers to read really good writing. I actually think it's the most important thing a writer can do yeah, other than write. I read it on the train home, came back to my desk and wrote a column in about 45 minutes, which is unheard of for me, that I was really, really pleased with and I'm never pleased with my writing. And I really think it's because I was so inspired by this piece. But also, it's doing homework. Now in the digital age of hot takes, when it's like... You know, I think it's... I'm suspicious of writers who don't read. Mm, mm. I, but I, I can be guilty of it. And actually, this was a commitment. It's a massive, massive piece. But I really think... I felt my brain yeah. change as I was as I was reading it. And hot off the back of reading it, I just... This thing flew, just kind of... Shot out of you. This thing shot out of me. And I think it's... I think... You should go to the doctor about that. <laughs> So yes, I also, afterwards, I, I was so impressed by his writing, which I'm very ashamed to say I'm just not familiar with at all. So before I get on to the marathon that is Infinite Jest, I ordered his essay collections that are called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, which is, that's where the cruise essay... They remind me of a bit of David Sedaris and his I, essay. I think it's so I think in I that tradition. It. And the other one that I've ordered is Consider the Lobster, which apparently is another great collection of essays. I've also listened to the whole series of Dear Joan and Jerrica, which I have been yammering on about <laughs> to anyone who will listen, and I'm about to go do my second listen of it. It's a scripted comedy podcast series about two fictional agony aunts called Joan and Jerrica, created and performed by Julia Davis and Vicky Pepperdine. The description reads, Every woman, Joan Damry and Jerrica Domain, have between them worked in the fields of life coaching, female sexual health, psychogenital counselling and sports journalism for the past 32 <laughs> years. Joan has been married several times and has five children, while Jerrica has been married for 30 years and has an only daughter, Cardinal. Joan recently turned her hand to erotic romantic adult fiction, whilst Jerrica has written five books on depression. And as you listen to the series, you find that Jerrica has never suffered from depression. <laughs> um, it's so beautifully, naturalistically performed. I think it must be part improvised it's incredibly dark that in a way that's very characteristically julia davis both the agony arts have these really funny recurring tropes they use this kind of semi-medical language that makes absolutely no sense (laughs) and they imperiously hand out completely absurd um health advice they're indiscreet they're politically incorrect incredibly self-centered whenever you get a small glimpse into their personal life they make enormous assumptions about um people's lives they're always on the side of the man which is really really funny and they always blame the woman for for whining too much I have a theory that parts of the characters are a pastiche on women's hour. <laughs> I would love to hear your thoughts. It's an absolute masterpiece, in my opinion. By far the funniest audio series I've ever heard. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I'm sure it will be picked up uh, for a second series, if not maybe TV. And it really had me in proper hysterics laughing. I'm going to insert a clip now. And just as a warning, this is one of the cleanest segments I could find in what is a pretty filthy comedy. Dear John and Jerrica, my husband recently asked if we could have intercourse using his big toes alternately. I didn't really enjoy it. Is there something wrong with me? Pat Jones from Kent. Right, Pat. What say you? What say I? Well, I say good on him. I yes. say good for him. and Good for him for spicing it up in the bedroom. And I'm sorry to hear that Pat... Um, what's her name, Pat? Pat Jones from Kent. Pat Jones from Kent is a little bit more broad-minded. Goodness me, Pat. <laughs> I mean, you know, here's a lovely guy. And by the look of him, he's strapping and, and wonderful. He looks broad-shouldered. Mm. He looks like the sort of guy that you'd want to 
grab onto and he's get got it. that lovely salt and pepper look he's got a gorgeous salt and peppery look all over his body the less dirty news i really enjoyed a piece by laura freeman a journalist who we had on the show before to talk about her book the reading cure she was writing about why meditation is not the answer to millennial angst for the times speaking of and this is awesome for any student listeners of the podcast you can subscribe to the times for 90 percent off so it's 26 pounds per year instead of per month you can find out more at thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe but we recommend a lot of journalism for the times and the sunday times so if you're a student know that if that paywall is too much for you yeah 90 off is um brilliant yeah Back to the piece, Laura writes that we live in a mindful age when meditation is promised as the cure to our insta-ills. But Laura says, why not practice mindfulness? I say, stuff your brain to the brim, she writes. Fill every nook and cranny with arts and books and music. The problem is not that we are exhausted by a rushing world. Many of us are understimulated by days spent poring over emails and Excel, and then overstimulated by nights full of twittering screens. What we lack isn't silence, it's sustenance. Something for starved imaginations to feast on. I could not agree with that more. God, she writes like a dream. I ripped it out of the paper because I am old school. So I'll give it to you to have a little read. It's not a long piece. But also, I've been thinking that for a really long time, but I have nowhere near enough, like, now sort mastery of words to be able to articulate it as beautifully as that. But actually, I think the problem is, is because I try meditation so much. I've and I had headspace on my fail phone for over a year. And actually, the thing that soothes and calms me, as she said, is immersing myself in the in the lives and thoughts and worlds of other people and and the stories of other people instead of fucking nasal navel gazing at the end of my bed in silence no one wants to nasal gaze <laughs> been staring up a snout all day um i totally no, I mean, no, no but you know like, i've said to you before you know i feel my um healthiest mentally when i've had my phone on airplane all day which is my favorite reading a good book mm. um people always say or just taking in the world you know where you. do you where do you find the time to read like i have to read i have to read like some people have to go to the gym Arguably, that's also good. Um, but it's a but it's a really lovely piece, and the sentiment is bang on. And I oh, think it's really that. important to have a kind of diversity of opinion on these like on these cultural um, epidemics, yes. And epiphanies. Yes, agreed. Another piece I thoroughly enjoyed. Another one I think will really resonate with you, Dolly, because it's a lot we've talked about before. Was Victoria Moss for the Telegraph? Fun fact: I used to assist Vicky at the now defunct InStyle. So Vicky was writing in response to the study from the sociology department at the University of East Anglia, which claims that plus size fashion encourages people to ignore their weight issues. Vicky wrote, I'm not sure anyone has walked into KFC and ordered themselves a family-sized bucket spurred on by the fact that they can still get a lime green waterfall cardigan and M&S even if they reach a size 32. It looks at the moral issues with the word, you horrible fat bitch. The emotional, when I hear that word I still flinch, she writes. Being fat is, to quote, entrenched in our social constructs. If you're poor, if you're northern, you're more likely to be fat. It's a great piece, very timely read. My podcast discovery this week is The Economist Radio. It was recommended to me by a high listener named Celia, who has a beautiful kidswear brand called La Coqueta. And in particular, she flagged an episode on free speech with the comedian Corinne Fisher, one half of Guys We Fucked. 
you'd love it Dolly mm. um, she had a lot of interesting stuff mm. to say about the role of comedy in a free speech I also really enjoyed the episode with James Comey who is the sacked director of the FBI he talks about what scares him about Trump is not the policies themselves but the decline in American values that he is encouraging and McElvoy is one hell of an interviewer I love Corinne Fisher as you know and I love her insights on the importance of of comedy and truth so I'll definitely be listening to that you'd really like this I think you know if you think of a podcast by The Economist one might think that that could be a bit alienating um, but actually it's it's really smart and thoughtful and um, which is spoiled yet again with you know another brilliant publication mm. um, producing really high quality podcasts on the book front I'm reading The Pisces by the poet and essayist Melissa Broder Melissa is the author of Twitter account and book So Sad Today and she's written several volumes of poetry. The Pisces is such a cynical, incisive, satirical look at modern America and modern love and the cultural epidemic of anxiety. The main character, Lucy, has a breakdown after breaking up with her long-term boyfriend. She takes nine Ambien and is found in her car with donuts scattered all around her. She takes a sabbatical in LA, dog-sitting for her sister, where she falls in love with a merman. It's not as strange as it sounds. Lucy attends group therapy and the way Broda writes about it is just brilliant it shows how valid liberal movements and phrases are concerned can be so easily commodified into a sort of millennial malaise and narcissism i mean joan and jerrica would go to town on this <laughs> i'm just going to read i think a particularly brilliant part this is when she's in group therapy so you'd really be okay to never fall in love again for the rest of your life i asked her brianne looked at me through her clown paint i'm feeling judged said brianne sorry i said what about you, Lucy? You don't believe that a person can be alone and be content with that? Asked Dr. Jude. I don't know, probably not. Do you? Oh, definitely, said Dr. Jude, yellow teeth flashing. I don't believe we need another person to complete us. Not even to fuck? Let's be conscious of any triggering language, she said. <laughs> yes, I'm feeling triggered, said Sarah. Right. <laughs> Sorry, I said. The room got quiet. Are you in a relationship, Dr. Jude? I asked. She paused and toyed with an angel card on the table next to her. It said, awakening. I'd love that. <laughs> You'd absolutely love it. Lastly, I was riveted by a piece on AI Insta accounts in Marie Claire US. Foreign magazines bought in European countries for 10 euros a pop are my guilty pleasure. You may remember recently, I think we were doing the live podcast for Moet, when discussing the it girl that never was, Anna Delvey, I talked about how much the AI influencer, a 19-year-old Brazilian model singer named Lil Michaela, who's worked with brands like Fendi and Prada, freaked me out. And this piece explained who she was and where she came from and it also introduced another AI Instagram influencer, a black model called Shudu, which was actually created by a white graphic designer so there was a lot of kind of cultural um, implications of that. Recently all of Lil Michaela's posts were deleted by a pro-Trump blonde avatar named Bermuda who demanded that Lil Michaela reveal her true identity. It turns out this was all a ruse by a CGI company named Brood who owned both Lil Michaela and Bermuda. But even though we know Lil Michaela to be an avatar, brands are still queuing up to do brand collaborations with her. And in this piece, it suggests that that is because Instagram influencers, IRL Instagram influencers, are no longer relatable. And this piece basically posits that fake influencers may be more relatable to us as consumers than corporal ones because they've sold out. But isn't that worrying? 
it's a great piece for anyone travelling and any of our US based listeners do you know I actually did a radio my first Radio 4 panel show this weekend and the guy who was sitting next to me is really interesting he's like the leading expert Museum of Curiosity I'll check that out and he's like the it's not out to the autumn but he's the leading expert on AI he said that the hardest bit of and the most interesting and complicated bit of artificial intelligence is teaching irrationality and emotion because that's what defines humans but I think what's so worrying is that even though people following Lil Michaela has 1.3 million followers even people following her know that all of her emotions and her words are actually being written by like a lab in the brood mm technology center Mm. it's not Lil Michaela there's nothing behind her and yet people don't care Mm. you know and also the worrying thing as well that's said in this piece is Lil Michaela never has an off day she doesn't have like friends or family to worry about like not being able to meet like a deadline or a photo shoot exactly but that it's that it's that fallibility and irrationality that makes us human but that's what they can that's what's so proving so difficult to replicate thank god what worries me though is that we're getting to a point where people don't actually care about that Fake influencer is my bio now. (laughs) Support for the Hilo comes from the Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From search to email to maps and beyond, it has a history of challenging the norm and finding a better way. Each week, Dolly and I cast our eye over the news and look for someone or something who has challenged the status quo. And this week's winner is Brazilian reporter Julia Guimaras, who was covering the World Cup and has been widely praised after rebuking a football fan who attempted to kiss her while she was preparing to go on live television. Footage of the incident, released by Brazilian channel Sport TV, has been circulating on the internet, showing Guimaras dodging the man's approach and berating him for his unacceptable Kudos to Julia and thank you to our sponsor Google and the Google Pixel 2 for allowing us to indulge our curiosity always. It's now time for the top line, read by Pandora. You've got me on the go, running to and fro, looking high and low. John Lewis is currently trialling a scheme whereby they will buy back clothes that are unworn or unwanted by customers in an attempt to reduce the 300,000 tonnes of clothes that Britain sends to a landfill every year. In collaboration with social enterprise Stuffster, a courier collects unwanted clothes and for every £50 worth that has been collected in order to be resold or upcycled, you will receive a gift card. It has been revealed that a sexual assault case in Rome was dropped against the head of Italy's national football team, Carlo Tavecchio, because the victim was too old to be distressed by it. The report, filed in Rome and obtained by The Guardian, said that at 50 years old, Elisabetta Cortani would not have been scared. Tavecchio resigned last year after suggesting that football stadiums could be used as lap-dancing venues. India is suffering from the worst drought in history, with 600 million people of India's 1.2 billion population suffering serious water shortages. 200,000 people die every year in India due to a lack of access to fresh water, and it is thought that by 2030, almost 40% of the population will have no access to clean water at all. The NHS is to open its first ever clinic for internet and gaming addicts. The Centre for Internet Disorders, a unit opening in central London, will hold weekly group therapy sessions. 
A couple had been given a life sentence for killing their au pair in London over a bizarre obsession with an ex-boyzone pop star. Sabrina Quida and Wisi Maduni starved and tortured the nanny in the weeks leading up to her death in September last year. She was beaten and tortured by her employers after being accused of being in league with Quida's ex-partner Mark Walton, a founding member of the Irish boy band Boyzone. The couple interrogated their nanny for hours to extract some sort of confession to confirm their perverted suspicions by dunking her head in a bath. A huge moorland fire has forced people to spend the night away from their homes as the Greater Manchester blaze continues to spread. The fire on Saddleworth Moor, which measures 3.7 miles, has been raging since Sunday night. The police have declared that Saddleworth Moor is a major incident and said that the army is on standby to step in. A slice of fatberg put on show at the Museum of London could be preserved for future generations. The lump of congealed fat, oil and wet wipes has begun to sweat and change colour and flies have hatched in it. But curator Vicky Sparks says the fatberg has caused a marked increase in visitors to the museum that they are now thinking of preserving it when it finishes its public display this week. It has become something of a sewage celebrity. The death sentence handed to a Sudanese teenager who killed her husband after he raped her has now been overturned. Noura Hussain is no longer on death row after her country's appeal court released its verdict, reducing her conviction from premeditated murder to unlawful killing. Nahid Jabrala from the human rights group SEMA Centre helped organise Noura Hussain's defence and she has called the appeal court verdict after a hugely engaged with change.org petition, which we flagged up in an earlier episode of the highlight, a step for justice in Sudan. Women at Zhenjian College in China are getting lessons in how to sit, dress and properly apply makeup. This new class in feminine virtue is a response to a broader push under Xi Jinping's presidency toward traditional gender roles. There is no equivalent course for men. The new class was launched in March, shortly after China did away with presidential term limits, which means Jinping could rule indefinitely. Jinping has presented himself as a supporter of women's equality, once calling it a great cause, but his policies suggest otherwise. Tennis champions are divided over Serena Williams after it was revealed that the seven times world champion may not be seeded for Wimbledon thanks to her maternity leave. Williams, who is currently rated 183 in the world thanks to all the matches she has missed, should not be penalised for starting a family, said Katrina Adams, the President of the United States Tennis Federation. British number one Joe Conter complained that the 32nd seed would be booted out for Serena, whilst Caroline Wozniacki and John McEnroe are in favour of her being in the top 32. McEnroe, who said he'd place her 10th or 16th at worst, said of the 32nd seed who would be booted out, what's her name? No offence, you're talking about Serena. Serena herself has been quiet on the subject, but she has said that if she wasn't playing tennis, she'd be having another child right now, and that she doesn't know if she will continue to play when she has another child. And that was the top line. You got me on the go, running to and fro. Looking high and low. A nice bit of behind the scenes gossip for you there. Pandora had to read out the slice of fatberg Ugh. story four times and then I had to go in a different room because I was making her laugh too much. <laughs> so disgusting. A sewage celebrity. Yeah, yeah. I like that it's beginning to sweat. That's my favourite bit about <laughs> Google Imager, it's actually strangely not as offensive as it sounds. No, it just looks like a fossil, actually. Which is very unusual in life. Normally things are visually more offensive. This defies expectation. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our author special this week is with the actor and now memoirist, Gabourey Sidibe. Gabourey first rose to fame with her incredibly powerful and award-winning role as Precious in the eponymously titled 2009 film based on the novel Push by Sapphire. She has since starred in films such as Tower Heist and White Bird in a Blizzard and the TV series The Big Sea, American Horror Story and as Becky in the musical series Empire. She recently made her directorial debut with the short film The Tale of Four. Now she's written a book, This Is Just My Face, Try Not To Stare, tells the story of her unusual childhood, her subway singing star of a mother, her relationship to sexuality, body image, mental health, and the story of how she rose to fame as an actor in Hollywood and how others reacted to that. All told in a fast-paced, totally unique, witty and ruthlessly honest voice. Gabourey, welcome to London, to Northwest London, to our studio. Thank you, thank you for having me. I liked on Twitter when you said that you just popped over to London to buy some Neurofen Plus from Boots. Um, do y'all know how special that is? I do, because <laughs> I buy it all the time. It's fantastic. It is wonderful. Boots is incredible. I went there yesterday and I can't promise I won't be back today. That's so funny because I feel that about Dwayne Reed. See, do you? Yeah. Thank you because I know that Boots is like Dwayne Reed here. <laughs> it feels super unfancy, but I'm sorry. You cannot get Nerfin Plus anywhere else. It's amazing. <laughs> and also you can get a nice little prawn sandwich from Boots. Which, can you? Yeah, the meal deal is yeah. great. Yeah. What? It's fiscally prudent and nutritionally uh, valuable. Yeah. Come on, <laughs> fiscally prudent. It's <laughs> <laughs> very important. Um, the book is a hilarious read. I think my favourite line might be the very last line in Uh-oh. your acknowledgements, which reads, lastly, a shout out to my therapist. Get that money, girl. Yeah, get it. Get it. <laughs> um, I, I gobbled the book in one sitting. Uh, so thank you for breathing it into life. What made you want to write This Is Just My Face? So I wrote a speech for uh, Gloria Steinem was having like a birthday party slash award ceremony for herself. And so I wrote a speech about confidence and how often I'm asked about my confidence and how I'm only asked about my confidence because people think I shouldn't have it. Mm. (laughs) Like it's Mm. one of those. Mm. And so um, it's not how are you so confident? It's how are you so confident? Like that's what it is. I had to like, you know, talk about like where my confidence comes from and you know, really where it doesn't come from. Mm -hmm. Because I wrote about how like when I was in elementary school, I actually had no friends and Mm. no one liked me. um, Because like not for any like sad reason, but because I was just really smart and kind of a dick. Does that make sense? I mean, well, I think it's, I think it's really hard. That was such a leveler, because you were like, I'm really smart, and it's like, oh, are you going much? And then it was like, exactly. but I'm a bit of a dick, and it's like putting yourself right there back it is. in place. See, because I'm, I'm smart and honest. <laughs> 
<laughs> and no one likes anyone smart honest. ever. And so Very I had honest. no friends and sort of in the the uh the speech sort of went viral and then I got a lot of incoming calls, you know, from people who thought I had a book in me and I really wrote it to see if I did. Turns out you did. Yeah, turns out I did. Well I am smart again. (laughs) Let's start at the very beginning. You had a very unconventional childhood with your Senegalese father marrying your mother for a green card before moving his second wife, who he secretly married in a solo trip back to Senegal, into your family home pretending that she was his cousin. Oh no, she was his cousin. Oh. <laughs> like she, she was actually yeah. his cousin. She was actually his cousin. Oh, I think she just pretended she was his no, cousin. No, no, no. Not to marry her. He pretended okay, so she's she, both of those things. She's his yeah. cousin and his wife. He okay. pretended she was just his cousin. But <laughs> that was Understood. It was a love affair. <laughs> so this was obviously incredibly disorientating for you, especially because your father was not a particularly good father to you growing up, but the way you write about your family is incredibly honest and funny, even when there's these very painful moments. You write, my father courted my mother for a whole year after they got married, before she finally fell for him enough to sleep with him. That's right, my mum is so classy that you have to marry her and then wait a year before she gives you any play. (laughs) Was writing this memoir a cathartic experience? Because it is a real, it's a real journey through your relationship, particularly with your father, I think. Yeah, well, when I first started writing the book, I was done with him. Mm-hmm. Like, just sort of, like, as an idea. I was like, no thanks, I'm good. Um, I wasn't talking to him. But, you know, I can think about people who have, like, ghostwriters, and I wonder if you get, like, the full experience of writing a book if you have a ghostwriter, because then it's you telling your life to someone else and then them telling it back to you. But if you're not the one in charge of the story then you don't get to learn about yourself in the same way. You know what I mean? And so I I learned so much about myself and also I got to learn about my family. And you know, one thing that happens that they don't tell you happens like when you're growing up is that someday you'll have to look at your parents as people and not just as parents. Um, and not just as people who either, you know, are God, you know, so you exalt them in every choice they've ever made is the most fantastic thing or the worst just because it's not your choice. Because we have, I think we have a tendency to either demonize or glorify our parents instead of seeing them as people who, 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 yeah, who are fallible. Absolutely. And who are human and who have lots of different, you know, qualities and also that have a life outside of you. Mm. Um, And I had to write about my parents' marriage in order to forgive my father for for having that second wife and having this whole other family. Because, you know, when it was happening and for many years, even into my adulthood, I was like, how could he betray us like this? And how could he have this second wife and this second family? And how dare he do this to us? But I was looking at it as a child and also as an American. But he married her in Senegal, which is very different than the way you can marry someone in America. America, we like, you know, get courts or I guess here you guys involve courts. But it's just as easy to be. I mean, like we could do it right now. Like all I have to do is get our parents to agree that we're married. You say, I marry you, I marry, I marry you three times. Wow. And then to divorce someone, it's just as easy. Your parents decide, your whole family decides you're divorced. I divorce. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. It's just that easy. Oh my God. Yeah, so he really did not break any laws. But I have to say, you know, from my American sensibilities, my dad was a polygamist and a cheater and a betrayer. But in Senegal, my dad was just a man. 
He was an average man. I had to write about that to see that he's not some evil person. And actually, it's interesting that you said that because as you were saying about how getting older is about viewing your parents as people, something that I've had to really grapple with is understanding, okay, who am I because of my upbringing, my parents and my context and my culture? And then who are they with their context and their upbringing and their culture? Absolutely. And, you know, it's something we, if we're lucky, we come to this realization that they're not screwing with us on purpose, that they did not hurt us on purpose, and that also that they're not just, you know, the best people with the best opinions in the planet, because that can also be, you know, damaging. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It can be damaging. Um, and I don't think we get to see our parents as people. We just don't. And now I, now I get to see him as a person. Yeah, I mean, your father, you just consistently refer to him as a boring cab driver. I mean, and that's not to say he's not. <laughs> but he's other things as well. <laughs> he's, I mean, yeah, he's, he's multifaceted to someone. I suppose it was funny. So like I, so in the States, my book came out last year in May and my birthday's in May and so my like book agent threw me a book party by no stretch of the imagination was it a birthday party I um invited my dad like and I was like oh you should come and my dad came with five children who I'd never met oh my god if they were in this room right now I would not be able to recognize them but they would technically be my brothers and and sisters I can't even tell you how many there were or what their names are or any of that. And my dad sat at the party the whole time on the couch as if there were French news in front of him. He sat, he was exactly the boring cab driver that I described him to be. He was, I mean, I was like, look, you guys, he's doing the thing. He's doing it. And everyone's like, yeah, he is boring. Because in the book (laughs) you say he just sits watching French news all the live long day. I do. And he is. No, yeah, he really needs to know what's going on there. He is worried, okay? (laughs) Something you excel at is talking about incredibly serious and at times very troubling things that you've experienced in life with the most amazing ease. Which is not to say that, that I imagine it was easy to write, but to read it is an easy experience. Was it important to you that when you wrote about the more challenging moments of your life, that you did so with a straightforwardness, or even at times with a dark humour? In particular, I'm thinking about the segment in which you talk about you, your mother and your brother living in one room for five years. And you said, we lived closer than ever, but we grew further apart. Familiarity breeds contempt and we couldn't stand one another. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's pretty truthful. It was really, really important to be as honest as possible for me, because otherwise it just didn't make any sense to be writing like I could have been doing anything else. Um, but I'm, I've, I have trouble faking things. I mean, outside of, I guess, being an actress, I have, <laughs> I have trouble lying. And I... I just think there's some danger there in lying and pretending. And I didn't want to do it in my book at all. And also a lot of the things I was saying in the book, I'd never said out loud, you know, ever. And it's not that I didn't have those thoughts before. I just wasn't sharing them because I'm like, in a, we all knew we were in the same room. <laughs> just like we all knew, we all shared a bunk bed. And my friends, it wasn't like a thing that I complained about to my friends because I didn't talk to about it with my friends because I was like in junior high and the last thing I wanted to be was different. The last thing I wanted to be perceived as was like poor. Um, And like, not that 
No one in my junior high was poor. We all were. But we didn't talk about it. No one did. And so um, that chapter was really, really hard to write because it was the first time I was ever talking about it. And I'm really glad that I did. Because, like, when you're going through things, especially when you're, like, a teenager, and I do, like, a lot of my humor is straight up out of a defense mechanism. (laughs) Straight up. And in joking about things, you don't really get to deal with them. Like, it's immediate. Like, the second I get cut, there's the Band-Aid immediately. Like, there's the alcohol. Like, I'm just going to take care of it immediately. But in that, sometimes the wound doesn't get a chance to actually heal. And so writing about that experience was, was the actual act of me healing that wound. Support for the Hilo comes from Moet and Shandon, and today Pandora is thrilled that we're going to be talking about something incredibly close to her heart, rosé. Rosé is my favourite, whatever the weather. Given the opportunity, I'd mull rosé and drink it at Christmas. I'm sure, given the heatwave, many of our listeners are cracking open the rosé on deck chairs, in the park, and if they're lucky enough, in their garden. But did you know that rosé, while deliciously chuggable solo, is actually the perfect accompaniment to food? Rosé Champagne is actually far more versatile as a food wine than any other wine. It has an intensity and fruitiness, yet it still retains a sensational freshness. Paired with beef and meat due to the Pinot Noir, providing deeper, more concentrated notes, making it perfect for a barbecue tipple. Moet's Rosé Imperial is best paired with uncomplicated Italian food, flavoured with olive oil and tomatoes, to enhance both the elegant simplicity of the champagne and the quality of the ingredients. Italian food and rosé champagne sounds like our perfect evening, doll. Let's go do it now. Thanks very much to Moet and Shandon. You were cast in Precious at the age of 24? Yeah. By which time you were working in a phone sex call centre to earn money to fund your third attempt at college and you write hilariously about the phone sexery as you call it um, when you're auditioning for Lee Daniels who directed you in Precious he calls you smart and you say oh great another person who thinks I'm smart can I stop listening to guys beg me to make them wear panties over the phone now and then another time which I loved you describe how women would wet the palms of their hands and slap them against something to simulate the sound of a wet vagina so talk to us about the phone sexery does that all seem quite surreal now yeah I was a phone hoe <laughs> you know what's funny the thing like I swear to god like most things again things sort of just like get out of hand for me that company had been up for about 15 years before I joined and the second I got Precious, I maybe went back and did one shift. We auditioned on Tuesday, hired Wednesday. We started shooting three weeks later. So I had three weeks. And so I went back for one shift. And then like mid-shift, I was like, I'm too fancy, done. And like, like I, it already had gone to my head. And so I stopped doing it. But by the time we were we were still shooting, we were, we were literally on our last week of shooting. And... I got a call from my boss who told me that the company, this company, this like 20 something year old company was now out of order completely, completely belly up because they really, really needed my phone sucking skills. You guys, they really needed me there. But without me, they suffered. Really, the the company closed down before I was done filming Precious. You talk very honestly about your relationship to sex. And in particular, you talk about how you were 
disconnected from it for a while after you lost your virginity. You say, I kept trying to make sex feel good, but it didn't, not with anyone. And I really tried. I tried to make a game out of it. I'd try on a character and see if she'd have more fun, but she did not. And I think that's a, a shared experience for a, for a lot of young women. You go on to say that you recognised your pseudo-promiscuity was part of your depression and not a distraction from it. Can you tell me a bit more about that and, and how that um, has changed as you've grown up? It's a great term, pseudo-promiscuity, because I think a lot of girls fool themselves into thinking that they, you know, are actually a good-time gal and that they want yeah. to sleep with all these men. But that's not actually how they feel. If you want to do that, great, go for it. It's 2018. But often they're not feeling like that inside. And I definitely know people who would go, God, but yeah, I definitely had a pseudo-promiscuous time. Yeah, I think we all, I think, not that, you know, HBO is to blame, but I think that we see characters like, you know, Carrie from Sex and the City and we think, oh, I can do that or I can be that or that's really fun or like, this is what my life should be. I'm young and I'm not married. And um, and that's not to say it shouldn't be that, but I think that I, I was really pushing it. Yeah. I was pushing something that I really wasn't and something that I really wasn't. I really wasn't ready for it, you know. I just felt chronologically, I felt ready for it because I was twenty, you know, and I felt like this is the age, and every and I'm the last virgin I know, the last virgin on earth, and and I can't be this anymore, and and I had to. It was more of a mission, and I sometimes find that so like it was it was very much a mission, um, but I guess I just I really had to get get it done. And what's changed now is one, I do the things I want to do. And not that I, f I was forced into any sexual situations then, but I forced myself, you know. You put pressure on yourself because that's what you thought, as you said, chronologically. Absolutely. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's normal and you don't feel normal and you don't think normally and you don't act normally. And so you got to go get you some normal. So do that because that's what everyone's doing. So go ahead, be normal. And it, and it wasn't normal for me. And I had to learn that. And now, and I do still very much, um, I do fixate on certain missions every now and then like as an adult like if I'm like oh I gotta bone that guy like I usually do <laughs> but usually I mean like this one time but but also I realize I do still fixate on missions and sometimes I fixate on men and I try to conquer them and usually when I do, I'm just like, what are you doing, stupid? Chill out. Like nothing, I, but I no longer pressure myself into doing things I don't want to do. Like usually when I fixate on a man, I do want him. Mm -hmm. <coughs> you are an anomaly in Hollywood because you are not thin. You have recounted how the actor Joan Cusack told you to quit acting because it was too image conscious for you to succeed. How interviewers would ask you if you plan to lose weight and the difference in how you and Quinton Aaron, a large black man, were received. You were called a fat bitch and he was called a big teddy bear. It's all pretty shocking to read, even though we know how sizist Hollywood is and how misogynistic it is, because obviously it's to do with the size of women and relative to the size of men. How did you build up resilience to this and how do you think it has shaped, no pun intended, your career? It was really, honestly, I have no other option. Like, I have like, you know, people are like, oh, what's it like to be a black actress? Like, I don't know, because I, it's all I am. Like, I don't know what it's like to be a white actress. Like, what's it like to be, a, like, a plus-size actress? I, that's literally all I've ever offered. <laughs> like, it's everything that I am. And, um, and I work. Like, no matter what people say. I mean, I mean like, I remember um, when I was, like, nominated for the Oscar and for all these different awards, 
there was talk about how I'll never work again because of my body. And people were saying, like, people were very, no, very how, sure. Howard Stern yes. said it was, like, unfair for you to be given that role because you wouldn't get another or something. You must, you chuckle to yourself and think, fuck you. I literally had two jobs when he lined up, <laughs> when he said it. And it, I, like, not that it didn't, like, affect me. It really, at first, like, the thing is, like, a lot of, like I say, I'm not great at pr- pretending, but that's, like, a huge part of my job. Not just as an actor, but, like, I'm supposed to pretend that, like, pe- what people say, you know, in front of a wide audience doesn't hurt my feelings when, like, actually it does. Not because I'm weak, but, like, I just happen to be human and so if you like tell your your audience of millions of people that I'm like too fat to ever work again that hurts my feelings just because I'm a normal person of course and actually something I love in the book is when you say you talk about your feelings being hurt and of course that is that would be very hurtful as well as very embarrassing and you said feelings aren't an absence of strength I know this for sure no they're not and if you think like if you okay You know how like when you're in high school and you walk up to a table and everyone stops talking and you know that they were talking about you? And then, so imagine that, but it's not just the table of your friends. It's the, your entire grade, but then it's your entire school. And then it's your entire region. And it just like gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then like there's a huge spotlight on you and you don't, you know, it's just, and it's really, really scary and it's a lot to deal with. But every actor, every, honestly, every, you don't even have to be an actor anymore. What it's social media. I don't really think of it as resiliency. I just know that every day I have to get up, every day I have to go to work, these bills got to pay themselves. I still have a call sheet to to adhere to. I still have work, I still have. And not only do I have other people's art to, to show up for, like in the case of like Empire, that's not my show, but I'm on it. But I have my own art that I'm making, like my film and you know, and you know, I'm probably gonna write more books. I have things to do and I don't, I don't need opinions to do them or to not do them. Now I say this thing where I'm like, look, you're not going to fight me and you're not going to evict me. Nothing that anyone has ever said has has affected my life in in real life and in real time. Maybe my feelings, but I still went to work. Mm. The internet features quite heavily in your book, which I love because obviously it's a big part of your day-to-day life as it is for many of us. And it seems like it's also a part of kind of your identity as well. You describe your love-hate relationship with Twitter and also a feature list of things you'd love to tweet but you can't, which I loved. One of them is... Uh-oh. No, because I would love to tweet this. Okay, good. My news resolution is to start asking Uber drivers to not talk to me without sounding like a bitch. Fuck it. It's impossible. It's impossible! <laughs> it's impossible! Try it! <laughs> I know that babies stare at me because they're curious or whatever, but I still kind of want to fight them. I do want to fight a baby, yes. Hashtag one just cancel me. Cancel. I saw that, but that baby's cute though. Whose baby is that? Your My baby? That baby. baby's good baby. She's cute. Hashtag rude ass baby. <laughs> Zadie's not a rude ass baby. First of all, your babies be rude. And like, your baby seems fine, but babies be rude. That's not on me. So what's your relationship like to social media now? Because it just you describe it in the book as like which I definitely identify with as a cycle of love and hate. It's I. It's so fun. Yeah. Also, I hate it. Yeah, it's evil. It's, it's a so bad place. Evil. That's where we go to cancel people. It's terrible. It's really, really, really fun, and and it's so funny. And you can almost say whatever you want. Not me. 
I can't say whatever yeah. I want. I was going to say, some people do say whatever Some people want. do, and I applaud those people. One of the strangest experiences you've had online is having to read a much-circulated hoax about your own death. I mean, I have to say, I read it with my heart and my mouth. I would have found it really trippy and stressful and ghoulish and anxiety-inducing. What was that experience like? Oh, my God. It was the worst. It was... It was the worst... Because at first it... At first, it was, like, kind of funny. Because I was like, haha, no, I'm not stupid. I'm right here. I think I would not have found it funny, I have to say. It, I mean, for a millisecond mm. did I think it was funny. I re- I'm like, for a millisecond. And then all of a sudden, it was... I went from being like, haha, I'm right here, to am I here? You know, because, like, there's a moment where, like, am I dead? Is the internet right? It's quite not. Zoolander, that. Exactly. <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> but then it's... um. And then it was like really, really annoying and offensive because it said that I had died while running in a scene in a movie. Like my fat ass heart could never, <laughs> like you could never run. She should have known better than to run. My dad, who I was barely talking to at the time, called me to make sure I was alive because my brother had told him I was dead. And it's just like, you know, it's like what a horrible way for for anyone to find out that someone that they love is is dead, you know, or has passed. And then I remember like talking about it with my mom and then my mom forgot. And like my mom and I were like, haha, this is so funny. Because I, I mean, for her sake, I sort of made it a joke. Yeah, of course. So that yeah. she wouldn't, and, and, and I like found a way to make it funny. And then it wasn't because she called me because her sister had called her to like find out what was going on and then she didn't know so she called my phone and like the mess and she left this message and the message wasn't to me it was to whoever might have my phone because i'm dead now and it's just like you can't do that to people in their lives like this Mm. is the problem with the internet Mm. this is the problem with it you can just say anything and enough people are See, like, the internet's really smart, but human beings real dumb. Another area <laughs> that I was blown away by was your honesty. And I was actually completely gripped as well because it's so rarely discussed by Hollywood stars is when you talk about what happened to your family when you became famous. You say you became a walking ATM and that your family called you less, but when they did, it was always for money and that your father became, in your own words, truly relentless. Can you talk a little bit about how fame not only felt to you, but how it changed your family? Yeah, that was a really, that was, I was determined to finish that chapter, but I swear it might have taken me a month to write it. I was determined to finish it, but it was really, really hard to get through. Because I don't think anyone does talk about fame and money and what it does. And and sometimes I would, it felt like a bomb that went off Mm -hmm. in my family. Mm -hmm. You know, this thing that had uh, affected all of us. Um, in such a negative way because also like what happens is there's a lot of resentment but there's also like a bigger need well there's this bit that's quite funny when your mother says to you but Gabourey we we know how much you've worth we've looked looked at Wikipedia you're worth two million dollars and you're like you're not factoring in the tax. Yeah. <laughs> also, like, I don't know where that to me. I mean, I was very much, like, renting. I was, I mean, at the time, I, my apartment was, like, $1,700 a month. And I, every month, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Like, every month, I didn't know how I was going to, how I was going to pay. Well, you were going to pay it with your $2 million. <laughs> Which, like, goddamn Google and Wikipedia and all those, but they lie and they don't factor in the tax at all. And they also, like, I think that, you know, my family doesn't, I'm from a poor family. 
none of us know how to have money. Certainly we don't know how to keep money, you know, because we never had it to keep. I had to learn how to have money, but I couldn't learn it from my parents. And because they're so much older than me, I also cannot teach it to them. And not just because they're older, because like I'm their daughter, they're not gonna learn anything from me. Like it's a very particular day. education as well, yeah. going from being poor to very comfortable. But as you say, in this kind of quite extraordinary position, I mean, you know, being in an Oscar-nominated film, that's not the normal way that people suddenly no. become successful. And, and you on top of that, have... I was the poorest person in the film. Like, everybody else, like, had money already. It was my first ever job. And then after that, like, it's not like I'm, like, all of a sudden making a million dollars a picture. Like, that really isn't what it is. Like, I'm very much a working actress. Very much a working actress. And also, like, I work by myself. Everything I do, I do on my... Like, even writing the book, I, like, wrote something about how, like, I'm up at four in the morning because I have to be at work at six, but I've been writing all night and I'm just gonna write till 5.30 and being in the shower. And I do everything I do on my own, but yet I'm constantly having, I have to pay this person's rent and I have to pay this person's rent and then I have my rent and then a mortgage and all these things. It's constantly shelling out money, like hair, makeup, all these things cost money. And you just have to keep making it. And my parents don't understand, like even if I did have $2 million, it's spent <laughs> and I didn't have it, I swear. Gabourey, in your own words, I'd survived an almost three year eating disorder, panic attacks, depression, and falling out of school. You've not only done that, you've established yourself as an actor, director, and now author. Could you read us an excerpt from your book? Oh yeah, what do you want me to read? What do you want to read? Ooh, I know. So like, I still go on these like ridiculous, is this a date? I actually asked once and it was not a date. I just like went out with this guy and then I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to wonder if this is a date. I'm not going to like add up these points and mm. subtract them. I'm not going to do them. I'm just going to go ahead and ask. Like this guy's clearly into me. And so I go, I have a question. Is this a date? And he goes, um, I swear it was like a seven minute um. <laughs> <laughs> like he truly, he was like, uh. I don't know. Did you want it to be a date? Because I was just thinking of it as us hanging out. And then I never saw that guy again. But I swear I don't to think God. men want to hang out, I have to say. This is what I'm saying. Yeah. Why are you being nice to me? Yeah. Why don't you want to hang out with a girl you've just met when you've got loads of friends? Yeah, like, I yeah. agree. If it's not a date. I'm from the When Harry Met Sally school of thought on that. Yeah. <laughs> men and women can't be friends. I, honestly, like the very least, I'm not looking for no friends. <laughs> are we friends, CJ? <laughs> we all friends. Is this a date, CJ? What's up? <laughs> we're colleagues. Sorry, we're colleagues. <laughs> okay, so I think this is like when we're doing like points and stuff. Okay, so like every dumb date or non-date or link up, or whatever uh, code these men, these terrible men come up with, is happening when I'm on them because it takes me a while to get to them anyway. Because like I'm busy <laughs> but also I just genuinely never really believe when a guy's like interested in me because it it's almost never a date so then flirty dude is all like meet me at this place for dinner dinner does he mean dinner or does he mean dinner you know what I mean <laughs> also he said meet up if this was a date he would have picked me up, right? Like that just makes sense to me. This is where the real non-fun begins because you have to start adding and subtracting points. Meet me will cost this date five points. If he says, what's your address? I'll pick you up. You can give the date 10 points until you remember that your gay best friend and your straight platonic male friend also pick you up, which happens. <laughs> my gay friends and my 
platonic male friend. I should get rid of my platonic male friend, right? <laughs> Who needs him? You get it, CJ. <laughs> um, so you dive deep into your own psyche and you deduct 10 points for being crazy before you even get in the car. Now, once you've officially at the link up, once you've lunk, you can start to assess the situation at hand. Did he bring you anything? Flowers or something? A Snickers bar? <laughs> think a Snickers bar is equal to a bouquet of flowers. I do though. A Snickers bar or a keychain from some other city he was just visiting? I ask because this has happened to me. A guy who truly did not want to bone me planned a link up with me and brought me flowers and a cross from Canada. Oh, I remember that dude. And it was confusing as fuck. I mean, you want to think gifts. This is definitely a date. 100 points. But I assure you, flirty dude is definitely up to something sinister. Flowers? The fuck? <laughs> deduct 500 points and that's what this book is about oh my god <laughs> i could listen to you read that all day thank you so much for coming on this is just my face is out now published by penguin random house Thank you very much to Gabri and thank you to everyone who listened. You can email the Hilo, the Hilo Show at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at the Hilo Show. Bye bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.